0: This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's patreo dot com slash
1: trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek
2: Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. How we doing, Trevor Prepare for warp. Course laid in, sir.
1: Request permission to get underway. Let's go.
2: Welcome, boomers and fans, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm Norman Lau, and we have an incredible show for you tonight because we have with us in the conference room for the very first time amongst all of my special guests and friends, we have Dr. Trek himself, Larry Nemechek. Larry, how are you?
3: Wow. Okay. Uh, I, like I, said, I was just trying to figure out if it was my first time, but I think maybe I was with an old one with an old one, a former one with Chris. But uh, this is great. Thanks, guys. I, welcome, I just welcome, welcome. it's it's weird, to th- it's weird to watch documentaries about Enterprise because it feels like it was just the other day. So it's, it's a little interesting.
4: It's because know? of the temporal cold war, Larry. That's why it feels like it's yesterday <laughs> or the temporal colding off. It's all the
3: oatmeal <laughs> is flecking off my face and I uh, <laughs> am seeing with clear eyes now.
2: And as you can hear, ladies and gentlemen, with me as he as always, we have Will Wynn, our content manager for Trek FM. Will, what's going on, man?
4: Uh, not much. I'm really looking forward to the show. Um, so I'm just chomping at the bit to get right into it.
2: For all of our listeners who are paying attention and who are keeping score, will is wearing a very classy Starfleet United Federation of Planets logo T-shirt, just in case you want to know what's in his collection. <laughs> and finally, with us, we actually have Mr. Aaz, our Mr. Ataz, Jeffrey Harlan. Uh, a our newly minted married guy. So, Jeff, how are you? Welcome
1: back. Oh. Hey, good to be back. Congratulations. Uh, I oh, my glass you.
4: of Corona yep. extra, which I'm actually pretending it's yep. ale to you. We will
2: all share a toast to you, to your future success and um, great stuff, great stuff ahead of you and Megan. So, congratulations my friend. Even yeah, though, thank you. Even yeah, you insisted on wearing a red shirt tonight, so
1: Yeah. yeah. So. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I think it uh, was appropriate.
2: We're going to take a screenshot of all of our shirts later on because it's just, it's it's the great, it's that, that's our added extra perk for all of our listeners, what we're wearing. Oh. You know?
3: Well, good thing I dressed up,
4: I think.
2: You're a little formal. I mean, you are the, kind of.
4: The night of little, galactic shirts. Is that what it is? Okay. Yeah, you,
2: you're doing a little African formal and I love that. Well, I think Cisco that
4: casual now. and Norm is wearing the same shirt he wears every week, the Neptune and back in 60 <laughs> seconds. Although, I might it might be that Norm has fifty of those shirts, so he just goes and cycles through them as opposed to washing that shirt, he just cycles through I, fifty. I hope
3: them. so.
2: <laughs> Here's a little um back uh, little little unknown secret is that when, when Star Trek.com, the store, hits those twenty percent off Flash um specials, take advantage of those because That's when you can really buy this, both. the exact same shirts <laughs> all the time. Populate your wardrobe mm-hmm. today. Star Trek.com, twentieth flash sale. So so getting into the show, uh, we, um, right before we um, start off, I would like for you to know a little bit about how you can get in touch with us, how to find Trek FM, and we'll let all of our listeners know all the various ways that they can listen to Warp 5 and all the shows on the network.
4: Right, so you can discover us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at Trek.fm and grab the RSS link as well. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. And if you like what you hear on Warp 5 or any of the other Trek.fm network shows, Please leave us a five star rating and review, which will help us greatly increase our visibility for new listeners.
2: I mean, you can leave like any rating you want, but we only really pay attention to the five star ones, and we'll delete anything else that you leave behind. So, Asp- especially when Who's Norm not?
4: writes the majority of those five star reviews himself.
3: <laughs> that listening to that just makes me want to invent some new audio <laughs> platforms because they're obviously unheard enough. I just want to make some names up, you know, even if I don't make them like Bajingas or something. That should be another <laughs> audio.
2: Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, this show has Larry Nemechek on it. It deserves at least a minimum of four stars, a minimum. And four he, stars, after, you insult me, sir. No, fives,
3: well, fives or go home, people. Come on.
2: There you go. You heard it from Dr. Trek himself.
3: Even before we <laughs> give you anything to judge us by, yeah, apparently.
2: So like I said, I promised you a fantastic show, and we are continuing our discussion and our study of the Blu-ray sets, and for this show, we are going into season three of the Enterprise Blu-rays, and specifically the specials. Because in the last couple of episodes, we've discussed the amazing video quality that the production has brought us, the amazing audio quality that the production has brought us. And we could cover that again, but yeah, I would yeah, like yeah. to... Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, that's a given. Yeah, yeah, see? yeah.
2: There you go. I'm getting the hook from Dr. <laughs> Trek himself. So we're going to get actually into the whole meat ...of this episode, and that's to discuss the special documentary, the three-part documentary in a time of war, because season three was the great shift in Enterprise. It was the the great experiment for Star Trek. It was the serialized season that has never really been attempted before on Enterprise, and it was kind of like in role-playing game terms it was the saving throw it was um it was a a 2d6 to see if we could actually save this season and hopefully not get rolled into a ball of fire right
3: Uh, that that's gaming terms okay in tv terms it was get the numbers the hell up or get out of here that's what it was
2: so in the three-part documentary will you actually broke this down and could you tell the audience a little bit about what they can expect from this and then we're going to get a lot of feedback from larry and from jeff And we're just going to discuss this in general because there is so much to get to. There are so many opinions, not just from the actors, but from a lot of the people behind the scenes as well. Larry, you were there. So, Will, let us know about um, what you found out in your breakdown. And uh, let's get that ball rolling. Right. So the the primary documentary on the set is in a
4: time of war. And it's broken down to three 30-minute sections. Part one, call to arms. Part two, Frontline; Part three, final conflict. Part one, call to arms, is a background in terms of why the Zindi storyline and a lot of it was the feedback from the writers and the producers, Phyllis Strong, Mike Susspin, et cetera. And then part two, frontline, you really got to hear from the actors themselves. And I really like the fact that Jolene Blaylock actually gave a lot of wonderful feedback on this set. I think, you know, in either, in previous sets you really didn't have her feedback or even her on in terms of an interview. So it was really illuminating to have her in that perspective. And then part three, Final Conflict, is kind of like final thoughts in terms of the success and, and um, success of the arc and kind of where it fell short and also how it propelled us into season four and obviously that notorious ending at the end of season three.
2: <laughs> the Nazgul, right?
4: <laughs> the Nazgul, space Nazis, all that good stuff. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. The name which shall not be uttered on air, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So before we get to you, Larry, um, Jeff – What did you think about this documentary? We'll we'll, we'll go part by part. Let's go to part one, a call to arms. And thanks for bringing that up, Wilf, about Jolene, because Jolene, um, you don't really get a lot out of her in these interviews, and she probably wasn't given enough opportunity to express what she wanted to. Uh, Maybe she just didn't want to at all. I'm not sure. And and Larry, you could probably to allude to that later. But Jeff, what did you what did you think about part one? What did you come away from it as a fan, as a longtime fan of the show? Did you learn anything new? And for our listeners out there who are kind of on the fence about getting this Blu-ray set, is this one of those types of documentaries that say, you know what, this is worth the price of admission alone?
1: Well, I really enjoyed the uh, uh, the documentaries. And for anyone who hadn't been following a lot of this stuff, like say in the, in the communicator at the time, uh, some of this information did come out in that, but... Um, a lot of people just never heard of some of the things that were going on behind the scenes, and this kind of shed some light on that. And I found it really interesting in that respect. Um, a lot of the uh, the input from uh, the actors was uh, really interesting to me. Uh, just talking about uh, you know their their uh, their choices, uh, the things that they chose to do. Um, like from uh, the later interview with uh, Randy Oglesby uh, and Scott McDonald talking about. They were the ones that decided early on, they were like, we're going to have these two guys hate each other. And then that got picked up by the writers later, later and that kind of insight was uh, what I found most interesting about these.
2: Now, Larry, um, in terms of this Part 1, uh, Call to Arms, they were talking a lot about where they should go and the risk that they were taking going this route if from your experience and from your memory files uh can you kind of take us through um your perspective and where you were with this and and how you i know that you said that you know you just watched this and it brought back a lot of fond memories maybe not some fond memories and what's your take on this and i challenged you with something offline before we started recording i asked larry to basically split his head open and pour his brains all over my podcast here so this is your opportunity. To- <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face. Your opportunity to do so. So we would actually love. We, we we truly appreciate you being on the show and we would love to hear almost every single detail that you can recall, you know, for this particular part of the documentary.
3: Oh, just suck it. Well, since you split me open with a zindi reptilian dolum knife here with my brain blood all over it. Um, <laughs> to get graphic because it's mm. post it's a post 9/11 world. Um, it's gritty.
4: It's crazy. <laughs> it's it's crazy. dark,
3: <laughs> and it may get us a few more viewers, uh, <laughs> listeners. Um, no, it was. It's uh, Enterprise was from the get-go was kind of a mixed bag. Uh, you know, for one thing, if you worked in Star Trek or you were you're a fan, and then doubly if you were like working on it, like we were, we had Communicator going, and hopefully you know the, the keep the franchise going and all that. You had a selfish interest both ways, and of course, you were always rooting for the show, and it was so. There were disappointments and, and yet successes, because as the show evolved, I had a hint this might happen, because the same kind of things in these documentaries when, they, when Brannon and, and Manny and they're talking about it, and some I forget who the third person says, well Manny is not just a Trek fan, he's a Trek nerd, and I obviously Rick and, and Brannon are Trek fans. But for about five seconds or 30 days when Ron Moore was going to be part of the mix, I was really relieved there would be a Trek nerd. And so part of the problems and maybe not so much the standard story structuring but just that that icing on the cake factor that just made it feel good and, and let you know it felt like it had something going on. That they were, they would have been listening. Um, wasn't there, and I was worried about that at the beginning. And then it was like, well, okay, well, it's going to be okay. It's not that, not that way. And I knew that a lot of people under just under the surface, like um, to start off with Mike Sussman and Phyllis, and then uh, Chris Black, who came along mid-first year, and uh, and then eventually Manny. But there were there were all kinds of people in the writing room. They just weren't at the top with the keys to the franchise until Manny got them at the end. There were all kinds of people who could have maybe put that. oomph flavor to it. So it was a hit and miss thing that the second year I thought got, there were some great shows, but also some, some thin ones. And then it basically, when I, when the third year unfurled, it was basically the word had come down. I, I heard about it a little after the fact, but, but early in the Zindi arc that it was basically the other thing of the world that was going on. They talk about in these documents, how it was, how it was immediately after 9-11, but 9-11's aftermath just as a cultural psyche smack and making everything darker, including entertainment, uh, was uh, sinking in and starting to assimilate the brains and soaking into the culture. And that was maybe finally starting to catch up. But the driving force here was the fact that UPN was no longer this goofy little network after it had premiered with Voyager seven, eight, nine years ago. It had gone through two and three and four little baby toy suits running around thinking they had a network. And you know WB and UPN came out of the gate at the same time. And WB, they were both struggling, and they both had tiny little slivers in the market behind the big three, and then Fox, and now them. But the WB was making an identity, making, and UPN was just going in circles—you know, sitcoms and one-hour dramas—and the only thing that lasted more than one year was a Star Trek. And and finally, when the shakedown started to happen, and Moonves said, "Okay, you guys, we own half of you, and this is ridiculous," less Moonves, and they just basically took took UPN over and put it in the back room of CBS and said, you little you know, idiots that have been running the network, I'm sorry, you you people who have been not the most adept here, we're just going to take it and run it for you. And that's when everything changed, and they talk about that in the doc, that all of a sudden they were, I think Rick says, they were distant from the network. Well, that's because Star Trek was not the golden calf anymore that everybody just bowed down to, and, the, and these big boys are saying, okay, come up with the numbers or you're out of here. Mm-hmm. So the whole Zindi thing was them groping to find a way to to get the numbers up. And you could say, well, it was token action-y. I mean, I was just checking this. Lost debuted in 04. So the the big wave of serialized shows came on actually with season four of Enterprise, and so it was concurrent and wasn't really a reaction. You know, neither one reacted to the other. You know, DS9 had played with pieces of years and kind of like, you know, really strong underlying serialization but that that chapter to chapter show to show week to week not standalone show, they really premiered here pretty much. But that was they didn't know they were going to do that, and they say this in the documentary too. That's that's something I do remember. I remember even our little vague, our trying to get Rick to say anything on on point on the message on the on the record, where he would have these wonderful things. Well, we have a really exciting. Uh, he'd always say we have a. We think we have a really interesting show coming up with so and so guest star, and that's all he would like to say about it, and you had no idea. We would have pictures in that would tell more about the show than what Rick would say about it when we were trying to do a preview on a two-month cycle turnaround magazine thing. But I would distinctly remember him talking about how we don't know how long this is gonna last. This may go you know, he was hedging bets but not trying to look like they were vacillating. So they really didn't know. It's like if the whole thing blew up in our faces we wanted to have a exit strategy to to bot back into something else. Now, what the show would look like and the fan base and the network reaction, if that actually happened, would look like if that actually happened, that's a whole other story and we worry about that, you know, much less the storytelling later. But it you did get kind of get the sense of like what do you didn't do a half a season for? why if you're gonna go into this, then make it a whole season. And maybe they thought that, but maybe they were just hedging bets, but I distinctly remember that but also, hearing through the grapevine that basically it's like you've got one year to deliver the numbers or you're out of here which is basically what happened until the paramount tv studio stepped into the upn network and said, hey hey, hey, don't cancel them we'll pay more we'll cut the budget we'll pay more of the cut budget and we want 100 shows to syndicate and and sell and that's what saved the fourth season it wasn't anything they did i mean it helped a little bit that the numbers did go up i think but that's really why there's a fourth season and that's why there was like a, um, I don't know, a minuscule, a very small piece of a chance to cross my Trek streams that they would have had a fifth season, because it was just pretty much written on the wall. Although they all, you know, they all played and worked and sang their hearts out that fourth year trying to trying to do it. But that's what I remember about starting off, and but just still going, guys, you really should scope this out a little more. And they talk about that in the doc too. You really should uh, at the beginning. And then kind of like a third of the way into it, they kind of did have it sketched out. But they sure didn't when they did the the finale of season two. They just talked mm-hmm. about the expanse. And we're going to see something in the expanse. And people are going crazy in there. And then they, they came back and, and settled down. But yeah, it was it was frank. And it's great that these Blu-rays are coming along now, not at the time, because they can all be franker to talk a little bit. And uh, Jolene, who, who was... Just never was good. At, she was hard to pin down for interviews. Didn't didn't that she want to talk? Did not want to talk. It was not that. It was just pinning her down. And it's so even for a communicator,
2: even for communicator, it was hard to try and get her to. Yeah. Oh yeah. You
3: know? Which is why we did. It. There's two. There's two lost issues of communicator. One was the one we were like right about to publish when when decipher pulled the plug, and then we had one that was all designed and laid out, and that was. Um, uh, our behind-the-scenes special, which had, we had layouts and photos and all kinds of great stuff about, which was focused on the end of Enterprise. And the last one after that was our Enterprise wrap-up, our Enterprise finale, and we had our interviews with all the main cast. I was so proud because all the hard-to-pin-down par- people, including Jolene, we had in the can. We, I was like, yes, we're finally going to be on top of this and not like holding our breath and riding the, the rims. Um, and then we got the plug pulled, so and that's still sitting here on my desktop somewhere. I, I'd love to find a way to to get that out. Was you know working with CBS or something. But bottom line is, yeah, that was very cool to see her talking. Um, in fact, I think all of them are in this. And John is his usual honest self. Um, I'm I'm gonna take a breath, but um, <laughs> but that's <laughs> no, this uh, before stuff. this goes on too much. But uh, but yeah, no, that's definitely my definitely just knowing that the knowing that the show's life was on. It really was. It really felt like, you know, I I can't, I was a fan in this I was a rerun fan from the original series, okay? And everything that I knew about the 60s was reading it after the fact. You know, the fights with the censors, the fight over ratings, the two letter writing campaigns, the cancellation, the first protests, all of that. And I really felt and then after that Next Gen started wobbly, but then by third season was a hit and they had the protection of syndication and Gene made sure that happened. And then after that the the three, all three shows, the first three sequels were all, it's almost like the recipe, like the immutable, unviolable re- uh, recipe. Seven years, the accountants have already, the bean counters have already figured out between the, syndicates, the syndication re-input and the toys and games and seven years and this much budget per show, per increase each year and this is what will make money and this is what we're doing. Even if it's wonderful, like Next Gen was, we will not go in eighth year, you know, kind of thing. And as this, as dirt. Jesus, this is like my modern life. This is actually a Star Trek show in the you know, on the bubble. This is actually a Star Trek show in a fight for its life for ratings and renewal. And it's like, wow, this is what the sixties were like. <laughs> I mean other shows go through it all the time. But I mean for Star Trek it was like, this is what the sixties were like. And there's some paradigm things that were a lot like not to go and I'll say this and the stop. The sixties were all about using demographics versus raw numbers. And if they'd use demographics more, Star Trek was a perfect, you know, college age educated the exact audience the advertisers within three or four years were fighting for. And that was Star Trek, but they cut them off in 69. And Enterprise winds up with, uh, like, huge DVR'd T-vode ratings, which now they look at formally. And back then it was kind of like, well, that's a nice little oddball tidbit, but it doesn't, you know? So it's, it's just really weird. This brought a lot of that back to me. It was kind of like how frustrating it was to sit and watch this and have apples and oranges get compared on ratings in different ways. And... Um, and see maybe some things that were breaking through for Enterprise that um, that that now are looked at as, as uh, things that might have kept them going for, you know, the, the other ways of looking at ratings and numbers and economics that would have done that. That and the fact that so much of fandom had peeled away and gotten bored that even the last year or two when the shows got better, whatever your flavor was of those last two seasons that people, people were just not going, or they'd found some other sci-fi show by then to, they, everybody was latched on to, you know,
4: Battlestar Battle Galactica Star. was yeah.
2: on the rise. Yeah. 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 One of the things actually, Will, you were really good at when you were watching these documentaries was studying the, the body language and that, the, the hidden kind of secrets that that you could mine from the reluctance of some of the actors or some of the writers or producers um in those interviews now i just because that she was actually the first part of the interview and and we really or rarely got at all to see her what did you think of jolene and uh, uh you know in the very beginning of that uh, of of part one of this documentary
4: i thought she was great i thought she it's interesting watching these interviews and then watching watching it on the on the on the tail end of the season two uh, documentary where she's sitting with everyone the full cast interview and she's so quiet and yet in this one she's so candid about saying you know I didn't feel like I could talk to the producers by understanding understand where they're coming from and then also providing insight into her character and how it developed in season three she liked the fact that there was an emotional undercurrent that was really finally being explored in season three and she I think she was right on point when she said you know, and she was always a Star Trek fan. She she knew what she was talking about. She said, you know, as a Vulcan, she is playing both sides. The logic and the tempest of emotions are fighting at each other all the time. And when she brought up the fact that she loved the fact that she was finally able to deconstruct her character and play in such a way to to demonstrate that tension. I thought it was so on point. I was like, "Wow, that's a really great insight." And I just want you to go on because she was part of the trinity. So she she is the one aspect that we rarely see. We see Trip, we see Archer a lot, but we're seeing it from Jolene's perspective. Just what we got from this set was just really terrific.
2: Yeah, I thought actually she she probably matured the most throughout the course of season 3 than any of the other actors. I mean, Scott is a great actor, he's fantastic, he's well seasoned, and I thought the other actors did a really great job. We probably could have seen a little bit more from Anthony if they actually wrote his part a little bit better, and the same thing with Linda. But for what they gave Jolene, especially when I think it all culminated in my favorite episode of the entire series, which is Damage, when she was at that that the at odds with Archer where she wouldn't let him. Well I'll quote her, it's like I won't let you do it, and she smashes the pad on his desk it was just one of those scenes where like okay wow you have really just i just watched you become this fantastic actress right then and there on screen i thought it was a really special moment and i'm glad that she was given a little bit of more exposure and i'm glad that she was able to you know to to be a part of this documentary and we had you know we had the the kind of like the 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 usual suspects here you know had scott being very leader-like as he always is you had Dom, um, being very Dom, Anthony being very magnanimous as kind of like the younger guy saying thing with Linda. Uh, unfortunately we don't, we never get enough of Connor, but the one actor from this entire crew that I always find the most compelling to watch just because I think he just loves expounding and sharing his opinion is Porthos, Billingley. Porthos, right? <laughs> Portho, I'm sorry, it. Porthos. So, so, uh, Jeff, I know it's, I am mean, you're a big Dr. Phlox fan. So what did you think of John in this? I mean, in all these in do- these documentaries and his candidness uh, about his views of where season three should have gone, because he wasn't the biggest fan of some of the choices more, um, you know in, in, as a morality play uh, politically um, just in terms of his own belief system. So was it refreshing for you to see something like this, or is it one of those kind of things where it's like, you know what? I like seeing my actors the way they are. I like seeing my characters the way they are, and I don't like having the kind of like the money. Don't show me between. behind the sets. Don't show <laughs> me exactly. behind the scenes. Right. Don't 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 show me what goes into the sausage. So well, I let's it, talk I, about John yeah. Sausage.
1: Yeah, I, I I did find that interesting. <laughs> you said that I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did find it very interesting where he was talking about how he disagreed with the uh, the choices that they made in the direction for the show as a whole, and for also for his character, but that he believed that his job was to be an actor and he wasn't the one making those choices he was just acting out what they had written down and as opposed to some others that might dispute every single line he said you know I signed on for this this is my job I'm going to do it and I, I found that uh, a, a nice uh, perspective um, I, I enjoyed that perspective from him and I can see where he was coming from on his uh, his take on that but if it fits with the character, then that's the character. Um, if, uh, if it didn't fit with the character, I could see where he would say, I don't see the character doing this and then bringing that, that up. But uh, his, his view on it was that the, the writers are the ones that are coming up with it. It's, it's not him. It's, he's just saying the lines that are on the paper. Yeah.
3: But he, he did a couple of times say in a, he did mm-hmm. find a couple of times in a, in the appropriate way. Uh-huh. <laughs> it wouldn't get him fired or yelled out or frozen out for 19 scripts that, you know, he did have a problem with, not so much he had a problem with him, but he didn't think that was it. I liked so maybe it was in part two but I did like, and he said this and it's like, we all know this, duh, but I like the way he said it, was that um, the Star Trek captain, the lead character captain, is the voice of Star Trek Yeah, and whatever they do, Kirk, Picard uh, Sisko, Janeway, whatever their ultimate decision is the voice of Star Trek, it's the Whatever iteration of the Roddenberry thing come down in this particular episode, that's what it is, and um, which which did get scary. Maybe later we can talk about that airlock because there's a. Mm-hmm. I have a very famous c- personal, not famous. I have a very personal connection to the whole genesis of that scene. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, John. I mean, and John is of all that cast, John is the one of that cast that I'm. I'm I feel like I'm the closest to, and I just have a very fond memory when the te- when the television critics had their premiere and they and they run around town and, and they do all the networks unveiled their shows. And I didn't I didn't cover T V as a beat, but Star Trek I did and, and we were invited to the T C A thing, which was a they ran three or four shows through and, and Enterprise was the last one for UPN that was at Paramount. And then after that they all went out to the big lawn out in front of the Paramount Theater there and people had Noshes and drinks and dee Dot. And they'd had a red carpet before that. And I've got pictures from that night. I'm going to do something with them sometime, which was great. It was like the first time anybody saw that, you know, and and Connor's all gung-ho on stage about, I I can pay off my house. You know, (laughs) what's the biggest thing? But afterwards, trying to approach the actors, knowing they were in different places. And this was kind of a younger cast, or else it was like Scott and Dom who had been around the block a couple times. And John was one who had been around the block a few times, but never with anything you know substantive he he was he'd done a ton of theater and some mm-hmm. lots of guest parts and he'd done psychotics and crazy people and you know child molesters and stuff on you know procedurals and things and he was the one that it I was it was easy to strike up a conversation with and it and I've had this I miss DS9 kind of but Voyager I remember very much thinking I'm watching this cast come into the come into Star Trek from wherever they came from whether they're an old fan like Tim Russ or whether they're totally new or all they know is what they've heard ooh these crazy fans these conventions and just watching them gel and he was the one that I struck Had this great conversation with that night sitting eating way too many snacks at a table just standing there for about 30-45 minutes talking and uh, he was the one that I got the sense of going this is going to be not that any of the rest of them weren't but he's one that's going to be interesting to watch and we we just hit it off after that and had been fairly good friends since then but um uh that 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 openness and just to say what he thinks and you know as an actor and also as a person in the world is um and being frank and also funny <laughs> and witty is uh that's just and bonnie is the same way his wife uh bonnie federici and she um that's just very much part of him and i was glad to see in this doc that he got because the things he said were absolutely true for him but in a in a bigger sense they were true for a lot of that he was speaking for a lot of the cast and and, you know, and, and that sensibility all through
2: this. Well, just to, to wrap up the first part of this, one of the things that I took away from this as, as one of my major notes was what Rick Berman said. Now, it was interesting that Rick wasn't as heavily featured in the season two Blu-ray and the season three Blu-ray. And I'm not sure if that was a deliberate thing because he was increasingly less involved in the series at this time but what he did say was the relationship with the network that's the upn was distant and not a collaborative experience or community and it was it because of that relationship that they were able to take the largest risk and pass through the storyline of the zindi and do the type of storytelling that they wanted to do because also brandon said that he was very excited about season three and the collaboration he had with rick it seemed that the less the network was involved, the better they had at passing through the work that they wanted to get done. And in season four, the network was pretty much not in the picture, but they were able to get all of Manny's storytelling. So how was that, Larry? I mean, is that... Is that no, uh, I, th- I,
3: think, I think Rick's uh, memory, what they, you know, I don't know what the, what the raw tape from the interview looked like, but starting a show right. and launching it, okay he's he's a primary he and Brandon are primary primary voices on that and casting it and dealing with network and studio to get it launched. That's primarily that. and then as the as the years go by, there are many more voices to squeeze in. I, I don't think it was a deliberate thing to disregard Rick. I just think the middle you know the middle layers, and then maybe when it gets to the wrap up or talking about the finale. Um, uh, I think I think he'll come back into play, mm-hmm. but I think it's natural that you see more of him early on. And Enterprise wasn't on long enough for there to be these major turns. They didn't recast and bring Worf in, Michael Dorn, or recast and bring Jerry Ryan in. You know, there weren't any. Right. They didn't. Ha- I mean, the Zindi arc was kind of the biggest. Uh, that uh, having, kind of giving the keys over to Manny as the actual showrunner day to day, and him deriving the story direction. Midway through this year, and then his idea being allowed to be the one that's the blank check to run with for the fourth season, which was becoming much more actual Tos visible lead-in centric. That makes sense. Um, yep. That was that's that's a, that's like what passes for the major shifts in the enterprise flow. You know, other than that, mm-hmm. it's not. It doesn't really equate with some of the other shows. And next gen is like earlier in his tenure when his own clout was growing and. You know the movies are thrown in there and all that, and I, yeah, I don't think it was a documentary. Uh, documentary like Roger here cutting down, uh, Vick's input. You said something. You you mentioned something else, and I have let it go, but it's just as well.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it seemed like that part one. Oh, of the oh, you know what? Uh, what? It's
3: about the network. It's what <laughs> I said. It's what I said earlier. It was like, you know, all respect to the people that worked at that time. They they got their jobs somehow, but they really were like a lot of little. Ten-plated, not tin plated Dictators of the Illusion of Godhood. They were just like little toy network execs running around at a little toy network. And they were all trying to – this happens. <laughs> People with titles try to just – the whole point was that uh, Next Gen and DS9 were syndicated. They were pretty much left on their own because the studio was marketing it then it was a network show, UPN, and they were so behold, oh, Star Trek is our flagship show, and it always got, what Anthony said here, Star Trek always got the most ratings on UPN, but that was kind of a low bar, and it got lower and <laughs> lower as the years went by, and uh, as far as a low bar, and that, that whole era ended, that's what precipitated this whole thing, that era ended just about the time Enterprise was getting kind of mushy in that second season, and there were a lot of thin scripts coming out, and I think Rick and Brandon were having burnout, and they didn't quite know what to do about it. And 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 that excitement that they talk about—that was the excitement of your adrenaline rush because your back is against the wall. Yeah. And I also think it's why they were already burning out. You know, it's like okay, we can do this, but it's like you 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 can go on 24, 48 hours, 72 hour, seventy-two hour—you know—get my family out of the tornado or out of the what's the movie out now about the guy getting his family out of the war zone? Uh, that you know whatever. That finally, even though you, adrenaline gets you only so far, and they were halfway through the year. It was really weird. I was watching that today, and I knew this, but it was hearing them talk about it that way about we were burning out, and Manny came in to the rescue. And I, well, I'll say this for later, but it just for now, it struck me um, a lot the way Gene Kuhn came in and saved Gene halfway through the first season of Next Gen season. of a virtual yeah. series. But anyway, but that the reason the network was that way was because. They got replaced by real network guys from CBS, from Les Moonves on down, who said, okay, uh, we're not doing this toy network thing anymore. You guys, uh, you know, it's like pay or play or -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, make the numbers or you're out of
2: here. Well, it seemed as much as the first part of the documentary is about salvaging what was going to happen with season three and the future of Enterprise. The second part, which was called Front Lines. Was it Front Lines? Mm -hmm. Yes, Front Lines. It had to do a lot with the cast and how the cast basically had to endure a lot of scripts that were being just kind of like invented on the fly and how the relationship was the one thing that kind of kept them together Their obviously their their love for Scott Bakula I don't think I can say that any other way they loved Scott and every single person who talks about Scott loved him loved his leadership loved what how he spoke for them and he became the captain of that series But I think the one thing, and and Will, I'm going to throw this to you, the one thing that was really on point, and I think the one character that really changed the whole course of this season was Randy Oglesby's Degra. And he just brought this tour de force performance of a character who had, what, 10 appearances throughout the course of the season-ish? I think 10 or 11, yeah. So when you're raking this down, because you have copious notes on this... um, what did you take away from this second part of the documentary, and obviously, Randy Oglesby is one of your favorites, so you know, once you kind of like let listeners know how important this character was to the overall thrust of the narrative? Well, I think he for me, he
4: was the most important because I wasn't the biggest fan as any art going into it. And it was because that third of the way or halfway with stratagem, with him in that episode with him and just Scott and how great everything was after that. How everything was tightening up, leading all the way into Zero Hour. That's when it, things really picked up. And not just picked up with the action, I think it picked up the beats that Star Trek needed to to hit, which is, it's about reconciliation, it's about redemption. I think a lot
2: of... Well, well let me inter- interrupt you there, because you've said this before, that you haven't been the biggest fan of the Zindi arc, and the more times you watch it, the more that you enjoy it. What, in the first part, before Dagger became... Uh, You know your one of your favorite characters. What was it about the Zindi arc that you didn't grasp onto? What what wasn't working for you? I think
4: it was just I think it was how the premise was rolled out. I think a lot of it was
2: there was just so much
4: exposition and just like all right, so here's a probe that launched an attack, killed seven million people. I don't know why the probe just attacked them as opposed to you know keeping. the element of surprise and then they inserted Daniels and they inserted the future guy that told him it was actually the Zindi and this expanse. I felt for me it was, it was just like you could, I understand it was a Hail Mary. I understand that they really needed to, to take this in a new direction. But for me initially, I felt that it was so transparent that they were just making a Hail Mary like, all right, here's an attack and now we're going to fill in all the details and we're going to throw everything together. And it took a, and for the first few episodes, it seemed like it was all about revenge it was all about doing what must be done all the, the the ends justify the means you know trip is talking revenge Archer's talking revenge they're all not the people we thought they were in the first two seasons and I'm like, man is this how it's going to be this is just going to be this revenge driven narrative and then it started to change when you got to see more screen time from Randy and Degra and then you had strategy I mean everything after that and then you realized that. No, they're going to work together, and they're going to have to stop this thing together. Otherwise, they won't stop. And then everything else takes off. That Tran makes it makes a guest appearance and, um, at the end, which was brilliant. How the, the little um, the Bane switch that he tried to do. I think it all worked out right up until <laughs> right up until that that crazy ending at the very end of that episode, at the very end of the season. But I think everything working up to there was fantastic, and because it was hitting the notes of he had to convince. Degra and the rest of the council not to launch this weapon. It wasn't going to be who's going to blow this ship up, who's going to blow up the weapon uh, in the biggest explosion in the fastest way possible. It was actually going to be it would have to be Classic Trek. They would have to talk through their issues and and find a better way.
3: So you're saying that that you suspected that they were just Literally dancing as fast as they could, to, just to get off the ground with it, and making it up as they went along. And maybe you—I mean, did you watch it in the day weekly?
4: Uh, I did not. I, I watched parts of it. I was oh, okay. in high school at the time, and then um, okay. I only watched it afterwards on Blu-ray and on streaming.
3: So you're saying hearing all this now makes total sense to you? They, oh yeah.
4: Well, duh. It looks like they were making it absolutely up as they went along like until they
3: had a clue. If yeah. a-
4: if anything, watching the documentaries <laughs> now, it's it's even like. You thought they were making it up as they go. They were totally making it up as they were going. Like, and,
3: and this is – I just got my list here. Look, you're talking about how it felt conge- – not congealed. It felt like it was coming together yeah. with, um, with Stratagem and then Stratagem. Proving Ground was right before that when they brought Shran in. Like, oh, we have a plan. Look at the episodes that were right before that. They're not zindy Zen- shows. The, okay, moving backwards from Proving Ground and Stratagem, Proving Ground was the Shran show. Which was mm-hmm. which was cool to get him into the the thing that year because they knew they knew Jeff and Tran were like one of their biggest calling cards and how could they not have him in this year? So the shows going backwards from Chosen Realm were, I mean, from Proving Ground were Chosen Realm, which mm-hmm. they worked in, but it was really about uh, you know it was almost a parody on the on the whole inner religion extremist thing and and warring factions in a religion and all that, but it was kind of an off. And it, so it fit in, but then again, it was its own thing. It was not about Zindi Zindi. Um, so Chosen Realm, then Carpenter Street, which was Zindi, but it was time travel, fun, gritty Detroit, right? Then mm-hmm. Similitude, which was Zindi, but it was a whole character, that wonderful character show that, that cemented Manny's place in the show. Mm-hmm. Then North Star, mm-hmm. which was David Goodman's a western one off, and then Twilight. Which was, you know, the, uh, the time travel twisting, you know, uh, future imperfect, city on the edge, whatever you want to call it, wacko right. show. Then the show before that was The Shipment, which was the last time they really got into heavy-duty Zindi. And that's like the, ba- That's like the, the what, the, I don't know, fourth or fifth or sixth one in, seventh one in. Uh, so that was like, the, that was, that's almost like the baby Zindi arc out of the gate. And then they had these four or five or six, while we're treading water and getting our shit together, episodes that were all you know they kind of link into the zindi but there are really these when we talk about oh they had the zindi arc, but they had these one-off shows in the middle of it they're all they're all kind of a clump right there together and then when you talk about okay now they got the damn arc together and now they're bearing down and now they're making the gears turn that's that's that that kind of it's it's chicken or the egg but when you talk about degra emerging as a character and all of the lack of a better word humanity Behind that and the motivations going on and the inner splits within the Zindi becoming apparent um, that's that all happened. You, it's transparent. You can see all that happening. You know, it's almost like the middle of the season was those. Uh, let's do these shows while we get this all sketched out, even though we're we're saying Zindi five times in each episode.
2: Well, it's interesting that you bring that up, because one of the things that I think the writers were talking about here and there. And Jeff, let me ask you this. They wanted to make sure that there was a note from Rick saying that if this Zindi arc doesn't work out, we need a couple of these bottled episodes so that we can probably open up our options to things a la TOS style. Did you feel that? I mean, it felt like North Star was a very TOS-esque episode. You know. So they were, they were trying to go that route and try to stay with the Zindi. But you're trying to serve two different masters, and it felt like two different masters up until Stratagem. I mean, is that we did you did you take that away from them, those notes, Jeff, when you were watching this documentary?
1: Yeah, um, North Star just kind of came out of left field. It had nothing to do with uh, the rest of the season. I mean, you could throw that in the middle of season two, and it would still work, just remove any references to the Zendi. Yeah. Um, and there are a couple of other episodes that uh, Larry was just talking about you, know, you could just take them out of the arc and remove any references to the Zindi and they still work um, so you could tell like, like he was saying it, it's like they were trying to figure everything out and they just had no clue where they were going until they could try to uh, they were just kind of biding time until they could uh, get everything in order and then get back to the story And I I could really see that. Uh, I mean, I I missed some of the arc at the time. Uh, I mentioned in a previous show because I was in the military and I actually went to the Middle East. And when I came back, it was about halfway through the season. But uh, uh, what I had seen, I didn't feel like I lost uh, anything just from uh, skipping a half a dozen episodes or so.
2: Now, every person has, obviously, their favorite actor character on every series, and these documentaries have a really, they do a really good job of at least allowing them to kind of like feature themselves. Jeff, was there any particular actor who you thought did the most, they did themselves the most service, not just from, uh, I'm explaining myself and these were my motivations, but someone who actually felt opened up to the camera, opened up to the audience and say, you know what, this is how I really feel, and... It almost gave you a greater appreciation, not just for the actor, but for their character motivations as well.
1: Well, I know that uh, um, Connor had uh, Trinier talked about his uh, how uh, it helped him deal with uh, his feelings after uh, um, 9/11 and all that, um, and also how uh, uh, Jolene Blairlock had talked about how um, you know she had uh, developed during the season and what she was doing, what she wanted to do with the character, what they did with the character. And both of those I could really see that, uh, you know, they were really getting something uh, out of that uh, that process. Um, and uh, that that really, uh, um, what they were saying uh, in the, the documentary there, uh, I could really tell that there was... They they had a little bit more uh, going on uh, for them as actors um, than they had in previous seasons, and uh, I got the impression that you know they they appreciated the material a little bit more uh, if that makes any sense. <laughs> you
2: no, know what because they're they're a little bit more veteran now, yeah. they kind of like know what's going on behind the scenes, and I think the more comfortable that they were with each other, the the ability to congeal as a cast was a little bit more prevalent. But mm-hmm. you know. Larry, being able to spin this all the way back to what you wanted to talk about earlier, because John Billingsley was so vocal about certain morality choices that the writers made, the one scene that you brought up in Anomaly was the airlock scene. And I know that you've been waiting patiently to be able to discuss that. So John was very adamant about that. He was he was supremely um, punctuated when he said, I don't believe that this is what our captain would do. This is not Star Trek. So... What were your, what were your, what are your memories of that? What were your experiences with well, that with
3: John? Well, first of all, that's, that's kind of emblematic of, I don't remember, maybe it's just because that many people, so many fewer people were watching Enterprise by then. I don't, I remember some fan reaction to that scene that echoed what John was saying, because I can totally see that. I remember way more fan reaction to the whole idea of having a long war arc on DS9, even Majel wrote a letter to Communicator and said Gene would not have wanted a war. Star Trek was not about a war. It was not a war series. We talk about war, but it was not meant to be like you know. The, and and totally in Ira's defense and Ron's defense and all those guys, they were trying to show what humanity was like when you're under the duress of war, not to glorify well, sure. and, and war.
2: So, in in DS Nine, there was that great episode. In that scene, was what was it called? Were angels fear to tread? I mean, it was just that it was a huge fleet of warships. Oh, <laughs> sacrifice like, of angels! The yeah. sacrifice of angels, and I was like, "This is Star Trek." <laughs> they had fighters, <laughs> I mean, so, right? They I mean, had that, fighters. It was,
4: it was like, "Well, is it Star Wars?" Right?
2: I mean, that's about as dark as it got. So, getting going back to this, that's yeah. Was, I just remember that the,
4: the
3: the 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 echo to this um, was was a lot less than that was, but maybe that was just because, um, <laughs> like I said, there was less. No, the thing with the airlock scene, for one thing, this calls back to. The earlier show, and I forget what you what two or three episodes in this third season, where there's a captain basically doing the same thing to Archer. He's desperate. They're just inside the uh, the, the Delphic expanse, and uh, they're going crazy. They're they can't get back. They can't. They're running out of stuff. They're desperate. Archer's crew in the ship are still all kind of pristine and all hunky dory, patriotic, optimistic. You know, yes sir, we're going to go on this mission and save our planet. And this guy's broken down. He's where Archer is later on in this scene we're talking about, and uh, he almost puts, he almost says the same thing to Archer, and he finally, you know, and they get out of it, but he looks at him, and he says, you know, there'll come a time when you're doing the exact same thing I am, and so that was a little bit of a callback, but, I mean, I specifically remember this, Andre Bermanis that you saw in the documentary, who were pretty good, who'd been good friends with all, who I started off interviewing when he was science advisor at the at the end of uh, Next Gen, and um, and all through Voyager, had had a you know just to kind of get together at his place and and uh, my wife was all up on Firefly and saying Joss Wheaton had said well this is this is what I would do with Star Trek if I had you know maybe not exactly but this is the ways I would find to make Star Trek reinvigorate it and and she talked about the scene the Jane uh, the Jane and and Mal scene where uh, given it's a band of mercenaries lovable mercenaries oh, sit yeah. together yep. but Mal puts. Uh, James, when, when he actually does try to yeah. do in the Doctor and his sister, and he actually does try to oh, two of the lesser, not as tightly into the center of things characters. That was an
2: Ariel. Aer- the episode was yeah, an Ariel. Yeah, and he he yeah.
3: threatens. He's totally into it, and you believe he's about to do it. Mm-hmm. He's about to blast him out the airlock yep. to prove a point that you do not. I don't care who they are. You do not. If they're in my crew, you don't do that to them. Right. And right. no matter how much you think they're bringing trouble on, it's not your ship. It's not your crew. And her point was that would never happen on Star Trek. There would never be anything that dire. There would never be And then within a couple of days, I think, I know, <laughs> that that story went from us to Andre to Brannon. And then within a week or two, that that scene had emerged from that show because it just happened that Archer was in that moment of desperation. And then, and then it came out, and I remember Andre and Brannon both saying, oh, I think you'll, I think you'll find the scene in this show coming up really interesting. So it's it's just a little spring of course it was definitely a Star Trek scene from the moment that worked but um anyway that's just, so now that 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 scene has become a little bit of mini con, you know has become a little mini controversy in of itself or a standout scene that people will really remember it just kind of adds to the saga of it but um it's it's like Archer's... this the whole thing is almost like meta it's like Archer and the crew's back was against the wall and the show and the producer's back was against the wall. Yeah. So if you think of it both that way. So there you go. No,
2: I know I know that when I talked about this scene in particular with, with fans, you know, on the Babel Conference or, you know, fans that write in from Trek FM, the one thing that just couldn't believe in in this course of narrative with Star Trek is that it would go so dark. Because that's just you know you're the captain you're supposed to be on you're supposed to be beyond reproach you're supposed to have better choices the options are supposed to be greater than than what was presented to him at the time and it's like you know what do they really have to be that way and still be Star Trek at the same time I remember when Scott Bakula said I believe it was in the season two Blu-ray commentary where there was a note from the producers saying that the captain cannot be bloodied. The captain's uniform cannot be torn. The captain's hair cannot be out of place because this is Star Trek. These are the captains. They cannot. They. They have an aura about them that cannot be broken. That does not add for really good drama in storytelling. So watching this happen in Anomaly was like, that's a risk for the brand. But I think it was a really interesting risk because It told a better story. It told a real story. Just because we are from this point to 2151, 136 plus or minus a couple of years into the future doesn't mean that every single problem of humanity is solved. No matter how much you want to believe in Gene's vision, this is just the reality of how humanity is. 400 years of slavery. It's not, you know, the, the sentiment isn't over. It's died down a little bit, but it's not over. That's three, almost three times the amount of what we're talking about here. So, xenophobia racism homophobia all that yes we we're trying to get past that but it doesn't necessarily mean inhumanity it's going to necessarily be gone those instincts those baser instincts are going to be driven out of us because of a couple of major world wars and the eugenics wars no I don't think that makes sense to me
0: well it's you know, fear
2: the, it's
3: fear of the other whatever whether you want to talk about um Admiral Satie going after the part Romulan kid. Not so much about racism or speciesism, but about just on witch hunting, or you know, there's still plenty of prejudice against whatever the other, even Klingons. There's, I mean, Picard and Cisco and Janeway's era, the Ferengi, are,
4: right? They just yeah. oh, totally, yeah. right, totally right, right. racist to- towards the Ferengi.
3: Tons and tons and tons of yeah. ways, and a lot of that is just. But what's the comfort? So, you know, what's the assimilation comfort? Uh, alliance spectrum zone scale with whoever it is you're talking about. Any other can still be, you know, especially in a time of war, can be painted that way.
4: Yeah,
2: no, I totally agree. And I'm going to do something a little unorthodox here because I know, Larry, your time is of a premium with us. So as of right now, um, we're going to continue your your normal hosts, you know, Will and and Jeff and I. We're going to continue with the podcast because we're st- we're still covering a a few bits of the Blu-ray, but. Larry, I want to thank you for your time with us, and I would like you to give you the opportunity to be able to, to speak about a couple points that you told us about before and let all of our listeners know about, about you know, where they can contact you throughout the network and a couple of the, um, a couple of the things that you wanted to discuss as okay, well. Okay,
3: yeah, and I, and I apologize for that. I just had something family uh, cut sooner. No, not at all, not at but all. One more That's point funny. here before you get to it. It was good to see, uh, and you guys will talk about it, I'm sure, in a minute, but Dan Curry and Ron B. Moore effects affects Ron talking also about bringing the Zindi to life. That's in one of the other pieces. And that was just really cool because it's like the show had got to a point where they had finally been able to do CGI on a budget even though they talk about still the limitations they had. The fact they were brave enough to take on insectoids and the aquatics as CGI characters, especially the insectoids, was incredible. And it was just – it's kind of sad because it's almost like TV Star Trek and the old communicator magazine and our access and digital Mm -hmm. photography – and ease of getting this stuff had hit this high point for where it had been because I did a wonderful—I I just remember being so thrilled to do a great layout that talked about the making of the CGI. We had early sketches, and we had Mike Westmore's uh, makeup sketches for the different Zindys, and the CGI sketches going into CGI. You know, like it was just—it was just a great—and um, now it's the kind of thing that, that that we do, you know, digitally online and. And have ways to do that. So, you anyway, know, it's watching those segments, skipping ahead there a little bit, was just it reminded me how everything was like. It felt like it was at a pinnacle. The show, the fan club, and communicator, and then we all, you know, and then and then 2005, everything kind of dynamited. So, I, I just wanted to throw that in. But it's it's great to see them including their due on that because that was such a vital part of the whole Zindi art too, trying to make that work. But no, I, yeah, I'm sorry, I have to beg off. Um, but I just enjoy doing the deep dive here. But you know, uh, just for me, good old. Everybody's tired of hearing it. LarryNemichek.com, at LarryNemichek on Twitter. LarryNemichek's Trekland. My um, Trekland trunk, if you like, archival studio stuff that I'm sneaking out. Um, my new CD, the Trekland on speaker. Uh, if you wonder where all this these things came from, some of this memory stuff, memory hole, is there because I have it on tape. And we remaster those every year. I debut it at Vegas, and this year we debuted... Um, not Enterprise... But uh, this year was the 20th anniversary of Caretaker and Voyager's launch, so the fourth CD is all about um, mm. Caretaker. It's called Taking Care of Caretaker. And mm. uh, it's like 15 to 20 minutes of Jerry Taylor talking, to, you know, just sitting in the office talking from my long interviews. So that's the fourth edition of that that I've done, and you can see that at my site. And the, the exciting news, if you enjoy this kind of talk, and I know you guys do, what I'm really trying to do to, to access my archives and, and my <laughs> memories and some of these resources and also people that have never talked on a convention stage before and probably won't ever uh, from big names, you would know, and, and a lot of people you'd never know. And that's my new program called Portal 47, which I say is finally a 21st century way to get a whole new way to the 24th century that you love and um, bring a little mini con to your own center seat all year long. And, um, and hopefully everybody right now I'm putting the pieces together we're launching in September I've got some early sign up bonuses um, it'll be a few days before the web pages and, and uh, Facebook are up but Portal 47 and you guys know the saga of the 47 I hope you know um, just email me Larry at Larry Nemechek right now it's not for everybody uh, but, um, and I say that as a dare how deep does your deep dive Star Trek go <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do that, and I will, I will hook you up and let you know and send you some information, and um, I'm just very excited. I've been trying to do this for five years, trying to figure out a whole new way, a new paradigm to deliver a fan experience to everybody, uh, no matter where they live, even in the UK and Germany and Europe and Australia and all that. So, um, had, it, had it kicked it off at, uh, at Vegas, and uh, we're unrolling it now. So, um, so, there you go. I hope, I think it's the kind of thing everybody that really in- digs into the podcast will... Will enjoy. So, guys, thank you for having me on, and I'm uh, I've got to run, but um, uh, this has been fun. I was really enjoying reading, the, watching the the Blu-rays again with Enterprise. In fact, I hadn't taken the shrink wrap off this year's set. So, <laughs>
0: <gasps> for shame. I know, I know. <laughs>
3: anyway, but thanks for having me on. Sorry to duck out early. And, um, and well, you are uh, welcome anytime. Smooth sailing.
4: Sorry. Back in
2: the deep. Yeah,
3: just survive. May you all survive your Azadi Prime.
2: Well, thanks, Larry. And again, it was, a, it was a pleasure having you on with us. You're, Like Will says, you are um, welcome at any time. And we would love to have you on for the season four review where we could probably delve into a little bit more of These Are the Voyages. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun,
3: dun. Yeah, that was bittersweet and sad in a lot of, a lot yeah. of good ways, too. Yeah, I, You're going to talk about that finale, that big ball. Here's one more last thing for you. The big ball, the energy thing that's rotating around when they're in the power room. That the mm-hmm. big fights all happened in that was the same lawn grass container that they used for the uh, romulan mine oh, and really? that they used for the Cardassian <laughs> mines, yeah, it was one of those balls redone again, and they would get it started. Yeah. they had it on a on a on a pendulum kind of system, and every time they'd start a take, one of the set guys who had like he had his rhythm down and he was like it was like will Tom's doing the doors on next gen he had his thing and so it would match from set from take to take, he literally like. They'd call one, two, three, like, ball, and he would go, had his little rhythm to go, whomp, and he would, had it. he had it down to, they had worked on it before they started shooting, to get it, like, go making that pattern that it swings in. That was, like, yeah. totally, and they would, they knew that a, a shot would never go longer than it actually settling down. <laughs> wow. So there you go. And I've got a couple of pictures taken in front of that, which was kind of cool. But again, that was, like, the pinnacle of where we were with being able to cover and have access and do stuff back in the day with enterprise and i sure sure missed sure had to see the show go away so um anyway have fun and we'll come back and talk about four then
2: okay thanks so much larry and we appreciate your time okay sure thing guys bye so unfortunately larry had to leave us but of course he has just the most amazing wealth of knowledge and we we were fortunate to have him for the time that we had him and we will go on we will soldier on without him but i just wanted to thank larry again for being part of the show and we can't wait to have him back for the season four Blu ray review, where he will be able to shed a lot more insight on, I don't know, one of the more painful memories of the end of the series and the end of Star Trek on TV in general. But back to the third and final part of this documentary. And I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, we're we're talking about, the first part was more about kind of like the story and the second part was a lot more of the crew but the third part I thought was really cool because we finally got a chance to pay homage and respect to the effects artists and how they brought the Zendi to life. So guys, tell me a little bit about how you, how you received that information because it's kind of techy stuff and especially for people that, you know, they want to watch the Blu-ray, they want to hear all the good gossip, they want to hear all the behind-the-scenes chatter but... The makeup effects artists and the, the, the production effects and the practical effects to bring the Zindi to life was so amazing. And I thought that was, it was, there was so much hard work and I just want people out there to appreciate how much effort goes into doing something like this.
4: I think the important thing for people to realize is it really took this long for them to really actually be able to execute a concept like the Zindi. It took the technology to evolve. It took the expertise to be there for, and it took the type of infrastructure to film it in a way for this to be believable. The Zindi could not have been done, obviously, in TOS. Could not be done in TNG. Could not be done in DS9. Could not be even done in Voyager. For them to go to this level, I think it had to be the. And it's true with the, the entire quote unquote back of the house or kind of behind the scenes technical part of it, it took the maturation of that process, the process of making Star Trek with a capital S and Capital T trademark making Star Trek to for them to actually visualize and actually create the concept of the Zindi. And you know, even then they said it was challenging. With the with the insectoids and the uh, the aquatics, how do you make this believable? Yeah,
2: on a declining budget. On a declining as
4: well. budget. And I think I think with this, I think it's so interesting because I'm almost uh, initially with the with the Zindi. I'm I'm of, of mixed emotions because on the one hand, Mike Sussman says I love the Zindi, but there are no Romulans, right? So a lot of fans said, "Hey, wouldn't the Zindi arc be great if it was the Romulans, it's a season-long arc that talks about the Romulan War, the giant elephant in the room?" So that's on one hand, I'm like yeah, that would be awesome. On the other hand, I think with time and watching these documentaries and kind of taking it all in with the Zindi you understood like this is actually what fans, at least speaking for myself, have been asking for a long time. Meaning, can we actually have alien aliens? Do they all have to be humanoid with things, prosthetics attached to their forehead or just cosmetic changes because of budget? That's going to be an alien? This is the opportunity for us to actually do alien aliens. An insectoid. They speak a completely different language. Aquatics. Mm -hmm. They're completely CGI. They are literally in a different environment. The type the concept of different organisms but all achieving intelligence but they're evolving differently but now they're working together in a way it's like a reverse federation right they're working together in a weird way almost like the federation will be and yeah. I think I think thinking it through that perspective makes me appreciate the Zindi arc even more because before I was definitely in the camp like man I don't know who these guys are they kind of came out of nowhere they have an entire race this entire civilization and why do they hate Earth again? how this who this field builders it was just almost information overload and it was never Mm -hmm. referenced before in 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 canon so i think initially i was like i was caught off guard like who are these people and why should i care but then over time you understood that you know what i actually appreciate what they brought because it really was something that was genuinely different and it was something that we fans at least for me we've been asking for a long time like aliens that look like aliens they look like humans I think I think it's fantastic and it just underscores the tremendous work that everyone did to, to, to create something
2: that believable. How about you, Jeff? I mean, when you saw the Zindi for the first time and you said, you know what, there was a did you feel that there was a better opportunity here to introduce the Romulans or did you feel that, okay, you know what? I'm gonna accept the fact that Enterprise is trying something new and this Zindi is an interesting thing. Did you feel that their execution was there for you as as someone new, as someone in this audience It's like, you know what, okay, I'll roll with it, see where it's going.
1: Yeah, I was willing to, to go with it, see where they were uh, taking the story. Um, like I've said before, it's way too early to, for them to start doing the Romulan War because um, this is, at this point, what uh, 2152, 2153... That's, that's just way too early for, for the Romulan War to start because um, everything before has said that it ends in 2161 and it had only gone for like maybe four years. Um, maybe a little bit longer than that, but not almost an entire decade. And so if they were going to involve the Romulans at all, maybe have them be the ones pulling the strings and getting the, the Zindi to attack Earth. That might have been an interesting twist. But I I think uh, um, the way that they handled it was pretty good, especially when they established that the Zindi were nomadic after their planet had been blown up already. And it's pretty understandable at this point why it kind of became a footnote in history. So it really wasn't addressed in later story, uh, you know, later in uh, the continuity because the Romulan War happened just a couple of years after this, and there it kind of got overshadowed in the history books. So it's it's understandable that it kind of just falls by the wayside and nobody ever talks about it again. Now we
2: we actually see a little bit more of, of Randy Oglesby and Dan Curry talk about how they crafted the character of Degra and how he had to interact with all of the different types of CGI stand-ins. And it's neat to see the background of how actors who aren't necessarily comfortable with being able to interact with components that aren't necessarily there and how to bring that performance to bear on something that they can't technically physically interact with. I find that fascinating with actors that actually work with blues, you know, blue screen technology, green screen technology, because I don't think that we can stress this enough. Randy Oglesby's Degra was literally the linchpin that held this season together from the, from pretty much, like you said, well, from Stratagem on. And he had to do a lot. He had to work a lot with what was going on in the council chambers with the Zindi, talking to the aquatics, talking to the reptilian, talking to the insectoids, just in terms of the the CGI interaction. So what did you think about, you know, his information that he was able to describe there? And let's take you, for example. If you wanted to do this, if you wanted to be an actor, and you're coming from a theater background, the way he did, would you find that? confusing or challenging to work with um, an element that just doesn't exist. And knowing that, his performance, being judged on that, was so amazing because he actually wasn't working with, sometimes, with those characters even there in the room.
4: Yeah, I think... I think every situation is going to be different. I think, obviously, actors are going to respond to that differently. But I think if you have a professional like Randy... And you have someone that has a theater background, comes from a Shakespearean background, comes from a world in which the stories are often larger than life, larger than life characters, larger than life dialogue, dealing with elements of a story that may not be relatable on a day-to-day basis, either 16th century England or in the future, I think you're a little bit more better equipped to kind of deal with that. And you're right. I think a lot of science fiction, you're going to have to be able to, yeah, do a do a blue screen stand-in, or do pretend that something is there when it's not. I mean, all the insectoids are just um, stunt actors in a suit, and that you're going to have to be able to interact with them. the The aquatics are just a screen, basically, but you're going to have to emote in the same way. And I think I think it's really a testament to the fact that there's there's a reason why Star Trek has pulled from a cadre or a contingent of theater actors or that a lot of theater actors came through this because they have at least the temperament and at least the skill set to be able to think and act a little bit more in a more fanciful environment. It's not going to be a courtroom drama. It's not going to be a police procedural. It's going to be some sort of environment that's not the everyday. I think even Randy himself and later Scott McDonough plays Dolom, I think they were pleasantly surprised that how big their roles were going to be in the last half of this series. Because it was really, but yes, it was Archer and his efforts and, and the crew's efforts to to stop the weapon. But in order to do that, Dolem and Degra had to resolve their conflict. And that was at the heart of it. And I think I love I love the fact that Scott McDonald said, uh that voice that you hear from Dolem, that was my voice. That was just, that was... Yeah. There was yeah. no special effect for it. That was just me doing that. That was that blew my mind, because I always thought it was uh, manipulated after the fact, but the fact that he could do that voice,
2: fantastic. You know, one of the things uh, that I wanted to end on uh, in terms of wrapping up this this last part of the documentary was, it's, it's an interesting parallel, but they actually decided, the powers that be, they decided on... On, on floating this idea out there of possibly killing off Archer, and kind of like restarting the the back half of Enterprise with a new captain, and I find that interesting because in season at the, this was the end of season three of Enterprise. If fans do their math or remember their history correctly, the end of season three of the Next Generation, there was a similar type of element going on. Where do we really is Patrick Stewart really our guy? How are we going to move forward with him? And at the very end of season three is when he was turned into Locutus of Borg. And there was that, probably one of the most famous scenes in Star Trek history when Riker said fire on the Borg cube that Locutus was was on board. Just because, I think at that time, they weren't really sure where they were going to place Patrick Stewart in the future of the next generation. And I think it was really fortunate for us that we continued along with Captain Archer's story in season 4 even though that we didn't get a chance to go into 5, 6, and 7 this is Archer's story. It's not someone else's story. It was important for him to go into the Babel 1 and go into Kirshara and going into the formation of the Coalition of Planets because this is the history and the canon that the series promised us so, so Jeff because I know that you're a, um, an original series fan would you have felt cheated? If they went with a different captain past season three, just because you know how important Archer was or could have been in the Romulan War and the formation of the United Federation of Planets.
1: They just spent three seasons building up that he's this massively important person in the founding of the Federation, and then to kill him off um, before the Federation is formed, that would have completely invalidated the whole point of uh, Shockwave, where removing him from the timeline prevented the Federation from ever being formed. And if they'd killed him off, that would have just completely thrown that off. Um, maybe they could have explained it away by saying that the events that he would set in motion at that point had already been enough, but it still would have been a, a stretch considering what they'd already established. So it would have been hard to justify killing him off from a story perspective at that point. Um, but if they had found they could have found a way to to explain it away, and it could have led to some interesting stories in season four um having the crew get used to a new captain, maybe have Hernandez take over as the new captain of the enterprise and Ooh, will big nod from will.
2: Interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> no that's no interesting- yeah. that's an interesting possibility, yeah, for sure
1: yeah yeah and i I would have liked to have seen something like that if they had done it yeah i'm to- I'm
2: torn
4: too because. <laughs> Man, Cotto says, like, you know what? Actually, I thought it was a good idea. And then he said, you know, I. I and then he kind of backtracks a little, saying, No, I get. I, I like the fact that Archer um, stayed on, and there's a lot to do, obviously, in his version in season four. But you know, he said that for me, my mind always goes to the possibilities that they can this can open up. And I think for me, that's my initial reaction too. Is like, yeah, this is actually there is precedent to this, like you mentioned, Norm. In season three, when they talked about killing off Picard, potentially, Archer, could they actually do it? Could they actually squeeze the trigger and do it? At the same time, Jeff, you bring up an excellent rebuttal that would go against the entire temporal Cold War arc of why Archer's important and why this is, you know, why he was such a linchpin to the rest of history. So I can understand both ways, and I think I lean to the fact that I'm glad Archer stayed alive, obviously because of what happened in season four, how pivotal he was in the Babel arc, which is my favorite Enterprise story of them all is how he, his relationship with Shran that's the important thing any other captain could have been the mediator but it was him and his relationship with Shran that's the important thing mm-hmm. and also I think if fans got the sense that the Vulcan right? arc too what was that and the, and, Vulcan, and, Theron- and, and the Vulcan arc too yeah. exactly exactly um, totally important in those in those ways I think but I think if fans thought that the Zindi arc was as a Hail Mary then they certainly i think would have thought that if by killing archer that would also another kind of a contrived way to kind of shake things up and i think i think it would have alienated some other fans it would have alienated the fans that had actually stuck with the series and stuck with the investment in the character and if they had actually killed archer obviously you wouldn't get the, you wouldn't get kirshara you wouldn't get you know surak you wouldn't get all the things that the character was rightfully building up to but i think that just spoke to the fact that yeah they shook things up. but They were by the end of season three, and that's the end of uh, the end of the season. Things they were still in a precarious situation. They had perhaps not shook things up enough. So then Brandon was like, "You know what, space Nazis? You know what? I'm just gonna throw that. <laughs> I'm just gonna throw it. It was the ultimate curveball, right? The, the, it's the it, the, yeah. the devices destroy, and they go back to Earth, and you're just like, what's going on? They're speaking German. It's it's it's. And at the very end of that documentary, so perfect, he's all like, you know what? It wasn't my problem anymore. It was, in my mind, I always thought it was kind of like an fu from Brandon to Manny. He was like, you know what? I am burnt out. I'm done with the show. But you know what? Before I go out, deal with this one, right? And right. it's, it, I think it's so crazy because I thought the ending to the Zindy story was so perfect. And for me, I'm still not fully sold on how the, the entire two episode with Stormfront, I think they did the best they could to wrap things up because Manny wanted to be done with that. But I think just the fact that they just kinda of like, you know what? I'm gonna throw another curveball in there really just shows you that, you know, they shook things up in season three and it, it just wasn't quite enough. They still had to do something else for, for um
1: well, in their defense, you know, Nazis have been part and parcel of uh, Star Wars. No, no, no. I know, like yeah, I know, absolutely. Yeah, patterns I patterns think <laughs> of force, for sure. That's true.
4: Yeah. And uh, going back to the original series. So yeah, I I, I definitely get that.
1: Yeah. Patterns of force.
4: So I I get that. I think. I think for me, I think it was always just like, what's going on? I don't I don't understand. Like and and.
1: Yeah, I I had the same reaction. Is that a like Riemann? That guy kind of looks the, like yeah. a Riemann.
4: Like, I don't get what's going
2: on. Right? I don't know. You know it's not the first time in science fiction TV, especially modern science fiction TV where they actually took a main character from the first season and kind of and and had to go in a different way like Doctor Who. In in the reincarnation of Doctor Who, Christopher Eccleston played the doctor for one season and they went in a different direction because they only wanted to do one season. They went to David Tennant and David Tennant went on to four more seasons and probably still is the most famous of all of the new Doctor Who. In Babylon 5, they went from Michael Hare's Commander Sinclair to Bruce Boxleitner's Captain Sheridan. And, you know, that was very early on when you just started to actually get into the character and they flipped that really quickly. But it, they were able to survive. The show was able to survive that because the writing was so strong. I think that even if they entertained that and executed it, because they had Hernandez in place, she could have been the really great successor, you know, with the, the just the... And the Enterprise coming home just being torn to pieces from Azadi Prime and, and the final, you know, desperation move in the Zendi arc trying to take out the final sphere where the Enterprise would just, it couldn't go forward in the first half of the fourth season. So you had to have possibly another option. It could have been Hernandez and it could have been neat as the Enterprise was healing. Then we kind of gotten to the great NX-01 refit that we've seen with, with the secondary hull and the new warp nacelles. That would Is that nice. where they fight so, the Borg? I'm looking. For, I mean, that was a great episode, right, guys? It was so good. That's why they brought in the board technology. <laughs> so now you know what the, um, that that documentary probably out of all of them so far has been the most telling because I think that we were really at that really pivotal, fragile turning point for this series in total, where it could have just gone either way. They could have been canceled midway through the season. They could have set up something that would have lasted for another four seasons. Unfortunately, we know that's not the case. But I think that in in closing and wrapping up this part of the documentary review, one of the things that you have to take away was that the the cast was finally coming together. You actually saw that in the performances, that they were they were a crew. And there's this interesting thing about season threes, where season season threes, by and large, traditionally that's when you actually see the magic happen, because the awkwardness of season one is over, the maturity of the sophomoric season two has pretty much educated anyone everyone into the maturation process of season three, and that's where that's where everything really tends to kind of congeal and gel and turn into pretty much the foundation of things moving forward. I mean check out in next generation that's when they got the new uniforms and everything kind of moved forward from there i think that's where deep space nine started to really start getting its bearing um i'm i haven't watched all of voyager i'm not sure if you guys feel the same way about season three there but i think par for the course that's kind of like that's just the way that the tradition moves with television and that's where we were with enterprise and season four was just a really good example of how it was improving as the seasons went on. So, uh, final thoughts, guys. Actually, before we get to our closing segment, there is a really nice 20-minute documentary called the Temporal Cold War documentary hosted by Daniels, played by Matt Winston, son of the famous Stan Winston, who everyone knows, at least everyone knows from Star Wars history as being one of the founding fathers of not just special effects, but Industrial Light and Magic and his own Stan Winston Creature Company that has Google him, and you will see, oh, yeah, he's pretty much done everything in the history of special effects um, and was kind of like the second wave after Ray Harryhausen. So it was. it's really cool, um, and that's something that you'll have to pick up the Season 3 Blu-ray to see because there's a little bit more information about the Temporal Cold War we have gone over a lot of it in previous episodes, especially our temporal Cold War episode um, on Warp 5. So when you get a chance when you pick up season three to see this three- parter documentary, make sure that you see that one as well. So in final thoughts of the larger three part documentary, do you guys have anything that that you would have liked to have seen that wasn't covered or was it ex- pretty much was it everything that you expected it to be and more? I
4: think I think it definitely was the best of the of the features we've seen thus far. Going in chronological order from one, two, three, I think they've progressively gotten better. Which is not to say the previous sets were informative. They were incredibly informative, but I think this one really sets the stage. As you said, Norm, it is the it is the pivot point. This is where things would go either way and you learn so much about their thinking. I think the input from a lot of um the writers, the producers Um, the behind-the-scenes, the um, the technical team, I think they've had a couple of years to understand what this show can and can't do and what they can do well. And with that kind of baseline knowledge, baseline experience, they're saying going into season three, we knew things had to change. And I think it's really interesting that um, some people thought it was a 9-11 allegory, some people didn't think it was. I think, ironically enough, i think season three of enterprise is still relevant now if not more so than it was back then more than 10 years ago it's still relevant because we're still in that aftermath unfortunately of this post 9 11 security versus liberty ongoing a war that isn't a war type environment I, you know this this ennui the sense of, of of angst and um this perpetual fear of there's always this danger lurking it, the season three is still relevant now if not more so and i Mm. think i think with repeat viewings like myself i think watching it more and more and knowing the the what went into the thinking that went into how this season was created you can now understand why it worked the way it did how there were parts of the series that seemed kind of one um one note that kind of seemed standalone because they didn't know what they were doing but when it was working, it was working really well. And it was in my opinion, I think it was it was the best track they've done in a long time when it was clicking. And for me, I think that's incredible because I have went I've gone through a one eighty degree um turn in what I view this arc to be. And I think that's just a testament to kind of how um, knowing more knowledge, knowing more about how something is produced can give you such a different perspective going forward.
1: Yeah. I uh, also took a lot from these, uh, uh, the features on this season. Uh, There's just so much information there that uh, some of it I'd heard from other sources, uh, but only because I'm just this huge mega fan and I've been following all this stuff in incredible detail when the show was on the air. But uh, for the average fan, they haven't been doing that, and uh, this is a lot of information that most people just have never been exposed to before, and it's very interesting seeing and hearing some of this stuff from behind the scenes. Um, like the com- the conversation that I mentioned before between uh, Randy Eaglesby and uh, Scott McDonald about how they were friends from before they worked together on the show, and they had uh, a really good working relationship, and how that informed their work together on the show uh, as uh, as Degra and Dolom. And that was just very interesting for me because that was one story that before I would gotten this set and before I'd watched these special features, I'd never heard that before. And that was uh, just one of the many uh, interesting things. And the Temporal Cord War documentary that uh, you mentioned as well, it's also interesting Uh, where they were talking about uh, some of the things that they had planned for that and some of the uh, ideas that just never made it to the screen. A lot of interesting uh, behind-the-scenes stuff there.
2: You know, I probably can speak for all of us in saying that this is another one of those five-star Blu-ray reviews that we had because if for anything, being able to get those behind-the-scenes moments and insights and beats and memories and all of that information from all the actors and producers and writers and guest actors that's pretty much why you kind of go into investing to these blu-rays because you can always watch the episodes streaming you can always you know borrow a dvd set here and there but these features, these documentaries are specifically made for these Blu-ray sets. I just wanted to make that clear for all the listeners out there because you can only find these, these features that were made for the Blu-rays. And you can find the archival footage that, that you know, the, the special stuff that was on the DVD sets that has been imported over to these Blu-rays. You can Those have remained intact. But there are new commentaries. There are some deleted scenes. There are certain things that are the upsell to the Blu-ray, but aside from that, you get the great picture quality, you get the great audio quality, and then you just get the great documentary footage that has been done, and done so with just superb level of respect and detail by Robert Meyer Burnett and, you know, all of the folks over there uh, that he was working with to create these documentaries, and he's done it for all four of the DVD Blu-ray sets, so I really can't... I just... There isn't a higher recommendation that I can give to these because if you are a fan of Enterprise as we are, this is what you buy special features for. You you buy it for just understanding a greater general knowledge of, of understanding the characters, understanding the actors, understanding their motivations, understanding the behind the scenes, seeing things that you've never seen before. That's as fans. I mean, that's the stuff that we rave about. That we just. We want to get into and dig deep into and dive into and increase our own personal knowledge and our own headcanon. So I'm going to speak for, you know, for my friends here, for Jeff and for Will. This is another five-star set, uh, probably more than, I would probably even give it like five and a quarter stars just because the season three information, it's mind-blowing that we actually got into a season four. It's mind-blowing that we got into a season three. So, <laughs> We all know you want to so, give I mean, it's, it your real rating, Norm. 10 thumbs I'm up. Get one star. <laughs> so you know, and and always it's always a privilege and it's always fun to bring this information to you our listeners here at Warp 5 and on the Trek FM network as we always do. But it's not the only thing that we've been talking about this week. So here's a quick look at some of the things you may have missed elsewhere on the network.
0: Previously on trek.fm, Standard Orbit.
2: So Nicholas Meyer hearing that immediately starts getting inspiration. So let's do Chernobyl in space. Let's do the wall comes down in space and it just sort of comes out of of Nicholas Meyer. You know, let's let's comment on, you know, you know, how would Kirk feel about this and all, all these sorts of issues. Earl Grey. Really she's following the hasprat, I think, is really what it is. Come for the revolution, stay for the hosperat. it's gotta be fresh hasperat. None of that replicated stuff.
4: Like Daniel's like at the watching the end of this episode, like tears are coming down the face. It's like, Oh, it's the hosperat, it's so
0: spicy. It's what it is. <laughs> the orb. Well apparently, and did you find this interesting, Matthew? Apparently The Na'vark reports directly to the prophets,
1: which is awkward because they don't always show up for meetings. So, (laughs) right.
0: Plus, you never know what time the meeting is really going to be. Right. That is true. It could have been yesterday, and you might have missed it. The ready room. Do you think this episode would have been so popular and remain a fan favorite if the Enterprise had been overrun with zebra mussels? (laughs) (laughs) To the journey. Why is he wearing the toga? Now, is he going to a frat party, or is he being Julius Caesar? Either way, it's weird. Don't you don't you know Tristan's fascination with late 20th century university social groups? Warp 5.
2: It kind of, like, is akin to um, when fans saw the galaxy class in The Next Generation for the very first time. And you had, a basically, a crew and civilian complement of, what, over a thousand people? About two-thirds of that complement were civilians and their families, so you actually did have teachers and scholars and scientists and their extended families on board.
0: Commentary, Trek stars. One of the things that amazes me about the score for Star Trek The Motion Picture is that he,
2: he only had 50% of the movie available to him when he scored.
0: So he, he was scoring an awful lot to scene missing, scene missing. The 602 Club.
1: Where did he get the cloak from on the <laughs> other planet? I really, really, really want to know. He shows up uh, with the he, cloak. He, he,
3: he kind of fashioned it out of out of a ludu-
1: rudimentary lane. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> Literary treks.
3: It's a small point, but I thought it was really interesting to have here in the book because, again, that's what Star Trek Deep Space Nine has really always done for
1: Star Trek, which is kind of make faith okay in the star trek universe and show how it's valid and so i thought that was a really nice uh, and again it's a it's a tiny point in the book but i thought it was pretty powerful at least for me who is somebody who is a faith so Mm -hmm.
0: axonar the official podcast
2: It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969. That had its moment. It had its time. And there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion.
0: Women at Warp. There's so many things that I got to do. Yeah. I got to I got
2: to pilot the defiant. I, you know, I got to sit in the chair. That was like that was a big deal. Yeah. And Renee would always say, "Nana, you know this isn't real." I mean, you're you're so excited to be in the chair. It's not actually happening. It's exciting. <laughs> it was
0: exciting. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
2: Now, if you like what you've heard tonight on Warp 5, or if you have liked what you've heard on any of the shows that you've listened to on Trek FM, there's a way that you can support us and support all the stuff that you've listened to, and that's going to patreon.com slash FM. It's our website that allows you to see what our goals are as an independent network, how you can help fund all the content and all of the service that we provide for you on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, and it allows you to see what type of goals that we have set for ourselves in terms of why we need the funding and support from you our fans because it takes a lot of money to run the type of network that we have we have servers that need to be maintained uh, we have all the different equipment the mics and all the things that your hosts need to bring this content to you on the air and that you know, takes a fair amount of investment so if you take a look at patreon.com trek.fm, you can see the milestones that we need in order for us to make sure that we can bring all this content to you. And one of those really interesting and awesome milestones that has been really successful for us is our roundtable program that uh, Will has started in the last couple months here. So, Will, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what can they expect from the donation at the $25 level for the roundtable program.
4: Sure. We're actually recording our August roundtable in a few days, actually. And it's just a great way for um, Trek FM hosts to interact with each other that may not interact normally and to also, more importantly, interact with you, our patrons, who support us each and every day. And it's just a way for us to reward and thank you for supporting us at such a level that allows us to continue the program that we do Day in and day out, we come up with programming every week. And you know, like Norm said, there are costs that are involved. And having you be that support is great because it helps us keep doing this, but it also allows us to interact with you and have really great ideas. We've had some really great conversations. In the past two roundtables, we talked about how we got into Trek, how we got into Trek FM specifically, our favorite moments in Trek. And it's just a great opportunity to talk about all things Trek, in universe, out of universe, production issues, uh, philosophical issues—you know anything's fair game. So I think it's a really great, just um, wonderful venue for um, great conversation.
2: And aside from that, which is I think is amazing because it allows a lot of the patrons to be able to meet each other for the very first time and talk to the listeners on the air. And it's a fun thing to do if you've never done it before. So take a look at that. There are also really interesting perks. We have. Exclusive content. We have producer credits. We have seats in our content development team. You can talk to Will about content that you would like to hear and more of that type. So we appreciate any support that you can give us. Um, the support is flexible. You can donate at any comfort level that you would like. And again, you can find all these details on Patreon.com/TrekFM. And I would like to thank always uh, our two associate producers so far for Warp Five. We have Floyd Dorsey and Mike Morrison, and they have been. Just fantastic with their support, not only in Patreon.com, but also on the Babel Conference TrekFM's dedicated Facebook listeners page, where they communicate and contact a lot of the fans there. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at TrekFM, you can always find us on TrekFM/contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to SpeakPipe.com/TrekFM and leave us a voice message there. If you'd like to get in touch with us through Subspace, you can also contact us through Twitter at TrekFM. Facebook, facebook.com slash Trek FM, and as I mentioned earlier, the Babel Conference. Type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and you will find our dedicated Trek FM listeners page. It is through invitations, so if you'd like to join us, please uh, ask us to join. Just hit that button there on Facebook, and we will take a look at you and... Allow you to join the most amazing Star Trek conversation on the web because it's a group of very respectful, very insightful, and very thought provoking people on the Babel Conference. The majority of them, if not all of them, are listeners here on Trek FM. So you can actually continue the conversation uh, from what you've heard here tonight onto the forum. So that's a lot of fun for the fans there as well. And wrapping up all of this, guys, I obviously want to get our information out there for the listeners to be able to get in contact with you. So, Jeff. Mr. Jeffrey Harlan, Mr. Newlywed. Why don't you let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you on Subspace?
1: Well, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, I post on the Babel Conference and the Axonar fan group uh, pretty much daily. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Harlander. Um, I also play Star Trek Online. Uh, my uh, game handle is at jharlan1977. Uh, I'm also a member of the uh, uh, fleets of Axanar. Uh, I head up the Klingon fleet uh, for them. Uh, My comics uh, we've spoken about before, uh, The Protectorate, uh, it's at bandwidthcomics.com. It's also on Facebook. Just search for Bandwidth Comics.
2: Awesome, Jeff. Thanks for being here tonight, and uh, we will see you again for the review of Season 4's Blu-ray. Can't wait. And, Will, how can our listeners get in touch with you?
4: We can always get in touch with me at my Twitter handle. It's at Will underscore Winswell, N-G-U-Y-E-N. And like Jeff, you can also find me almost every day on the Babel Conference, always talking things Trek and non-Trek because of 602 and everything um, geekery. We talk about everything under the sun. So looking forward to continuing the discussion there. And hopefully we can hear from, from your feedback.
2: Awesome, Well, Thanks. And again, you know, you're... You're going to be, I know you're going to be vocal about uh, one of the particular special features on the Season 4 Blu-ray when it has to do with a very special, very controversial, and very, well, I'm just going to stop there, but the initials of that episode are TATV, and we'll get to that Uh, in the next episode so thanks for being on tonight now if you'd like to get in touch with me you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference you can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau that's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O you can always find me on the Axonar fan group page on Facebook because I'm a huge supporter of that project and what Alec Peters is doing there as executive producer and you can find me here on the network as one of the executive producers along with Christopher Jones and Matthew Rushing and I'm a proud supporter of this network through patreon.com. This is how I started my career here, and I hope that you have the opportunity to be able to do so as well in the manner of support that you would like to choose on patreon.com slash trekfm.
4: So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here in the conference room for another episode of Warp 5.